All right. Hello, everybody. I'm very excited today. I have two exciting guests who I'm excited to get to talk to each other. I have Bethel McGrew, uh, who, yes, I was instructed that the uh, it is uh, it has the Hebrew pronunciation, not the standard pronunciation. Do you want, I, I guess? Do you want to uh, explain that? Uh, I mean, when when two Bible school graduates fall in love and have a kid you get Hebrew pronunciation. So yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> and like I said, you can just call me Samuel for the rest of the conversation. And um, I get uh, Paul is just Paul, I suppose. So my you other call guy, me Saul. Saul. <laughs> I'll let Jacob call you Saul. Um, <laughs> all right. So the exciting thing is for those who don't know, or for those who already know, there's going to be an event in Chicago um, where both of these fine people will be present. Very fine people. Very, very fine, people. Uh, interesting, um, definitely attractive people will be present. And we will uh, have some live events that you can come to. So this is being hosted and organized by the Chicago Bridges of Meaning Meetup, which is an estuary, although we need to probably more formalize our affiliation with uh, John Van Donk and, and um, Sacramento Estuary Hood. We're kind of just in our a self-denomination, uh, self-appointed estuary. Um, Why stop now? <laughs> so maybe maybe you guys don't want us to be any more officially under your umbrella. But anyway, we we meet once a month and we talk about Paul and Jordan Peterson and whatever else we want. And we've had a good group going. We started, I believe, in 2019, I think, and have been going for over three years. We survived COVID. Um, we had to meet remotely on Zoom for a while, but then we got meeting back in person. And so we weathered the COVID storm and with most of our membership intact and have even been growing a little bit since then. So anyway, this event is in Chicago. It is starting Monday, June 6th and going through Thursday, June 9th, although the main two events are on Tuesday, June 7th and Wednesday, June 8th. So Tuesday, June 7th, and I have links in the description for this meeting, and I'll send those to you too, Paul, for meetup events that you can RSVP to, um, which are on Tuesday. So Tuesday from about from 10 to 4 p.m., we will have live podcasting where um, Parker set a case, and maybe a, I won't confirm yet, but a, a, a second potential person in the afternoon will host live versions of their podcast with Paul and Bethel as guests. And that will be, you can be in the live audience, there will be a question and answer period, there will be a lunch, and there will be time to hang out and discuss what we just listened to in sort of like a small meetup group format. That's on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, there is a private dinner, which will cost some amount of money, but the main reason that it'll cost some amount of money is that will help us raise some proceeds to help pay for their costs and maybe give them a little bit of a gift afterwards. Um, that is at 5 p.m. And then at 7 p.m. at Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church, there will be a, this is sort of like the main event of the meetup, 
Um, both of them will be on stage and they will be moderated by a member of our meetup named Moises, who's a hoot, so you guys will like him. He is a, he is a Puerto Rican Christian Reformed pastor in the inner city of Chicago. Um, oh, sweet. That's my kind of guy. I, I and, like him already. Oh, you will like him. Yeah. Yes, he is a, he, anyway, he is a force of nature. And so I'm sure that he will do a good job moderating that conversation. And that is like from seven to nine, and there might be, you know, some informal hanging out, rubbing elbows together after that. Um, so those are the main events. So, um, and if you have any questions about this, you can email transfiguredchannel at gmail.com, transfigured, like my YouTube channel, transfiguredchannel, all lowercase, no spaces, no periods at gmail.com if you have questions or um, have any other things related to that. Um, but anyway, so I think that's the housekeeping, unless you guys wanted to say anything about that before we got going. After on, on June 17 at 8 a.m. in the morning at the Prince Center at Calvin University, There'll be a special estuary breakfast that is targeting church leaders. You don't have to be Christian Reformed. You don't have to be a pastor. But if you're a church leader and you want to think about estuary, that's a conversation. I'll be there with John Vendonk. Breakfast is on us. Um, we'll take a little donation maybe to cover the cost of the room. But that's after Synod. So I'm doing this before Synod. And that's right after Synod. So a little promo for that. Great. And the end... And so on June 18, there's a West Michigan estuary meeting, and I'll have details for that below too. That's also in the Grand Rapids area. Sounds good. And I'll also put a link to the regular June meeting of the Chicago meetup. If in case you are one of those Chicago people who somehow has been listening to me and or Paul and aren't already going to our meetup, um, this could be the kick in the butt to start doing that, and I'll, I'll provide a link to that. Um, but anyway, I think the main purpose of our conversation tonight is to kind of warm you guys up a little bit, get each other caught up in each other's lives and thought lives, so that A, it can be an advertisement of better things to come, but also serve as a way uh, to help improve those future conversations too, because uh, I think we all kind of agreed that repeated conversation partners um, that still have a little bit of tension and difference kind of make for the best and most interesting and substantive conversations. So uh, I suppose that's, uh, that's the goal for this episode. Um, so I kind of just wanted to, um, you know, have Paul interrogate Bethel and, uh, you know, uh, so for those who don't know, Bethel used to go by and kind of still goes by Esther O'Reilly. Um, as that was sort of your pseudonym or your, um, I don't know, uh, pen whatever, name. Yes, pen name. Pseudonym. I had, I had a few bylines, but I've actually gone through, I've started changing my bylines at different places. Um, so I like, there's still a couple leftover Esther bylines here and there, but like I changed my Substack. Um, so my Substack URL, all my, my old links under Esther are broken. So I, you know, it's just kind of, organically happened that I, I've been shifting more and more to to the real name. I still have the Twitter handle because it's a, a pain to shift that. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah. Yeah. And so um, and also your mom has been on my channel twice already. Uh, Lydia McGrew, in case anyone has not already noticed the resemblance both in appearance and in speech. 
that especially um, speech, especially speech <laughs> yeah. um, that Lydia McGrew is a, uh, a philosopher on sort of like New Testament reliability and eyewitness testimony and those sorts of things. Um, and then your dad is also a PhD level philosopher on similar topics. Um, and so you are uh, a, a double philosophied uh, um, super uh, child or something like or that. Something. Homeschooled. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I was homeschooled, though. It, yeah, we can get into that. <laughs> so you want, you want, you ready to have me go? Uh, yes. Yeah, go, go ahead. Because, because go ahead. I, I trained myself to call her Esther so that I wouldn't blow her cover. And then she you were decides, so good. Other people were not nearly as good at that, but you were great. So well, I've, I've learned a thing that if you want to call somebody by a name and um, you got to you got to practice. So yeah. and yeah. so she and I have had a variety of conversations, but we've never done what I usually do, which is sort of get into people's stories a little bit. And, you know, some people wonder why I do that. Well, part of the reason, of course, is that I want to know who I'm talking to, because we can have a better conversation if we know each other and part of it is that I also think people will, people will, I actually did a conversation yesterday with Andrea with the bangs where I actually went through quite a Love bit of this Andrea. and, so and went through quite a bit of why, what, what's, what's lacking in the Twitter sphere and on YouTube in terms of really productive conversations across differences. A lot of it has to do with not having um, a deep personal connection that sort of is a container that allows, you know, conflicts to be productive and differences to be productive rather than just, um, just hot. So let's, so both of your parents are academics and smart people and known sort of in the evangelical thinkosphere. Um, how did your parents meet? They met at Bible college. Um, so my father was the son of a professor there. And uh, my mother was going to college early. She was only 16. And I think he was 17. <laughs> and uh, she was playing the piano in the chapel. And he popped his head in and said, hey, that sounds nice. And she said, oh, thank you. And then they got to know each other. And, um, and they were both these very, uh, very moody, passionate, articulate kids both feeling a little um, sort of frisky and a little jaded with fundamentalist, whatever, whatever, because they both grew up in very hardcore, um, you know, red letter King James fundamentalist backgrounds. And uh, so they, they were, you know, on that teenage journey together, uh, trying to find themselves. And then in, in the course of that, they found each other and uh, lots of lots of chemistry, lots of ups and downs. And then they got married very young. Uh, she was 20, he was 21. Um, and so, you know, they look back now, like, what were we thinking? <laughs> but uh, but it, it worked. It, it, God blessed them and carried them through and, and gave my dad some great uh, academic mentors. Um, and uh, they they actually thought about becoming missionaries because um, they were they were both very, very zealous about evangelism. And I mean, they even thought, I think specifically about going to Israel because they had a particular heart for, uh, for Jewish missions. But, um, you know, it just didn't end up happening. And it became clear that my dad was gonna be an academic force. So um, 
a mentor at one point just said, go be the next Francis Schaefer or, or whatever, um, which I mean, he, he went on and became, I, I wouldn't say he became the next Francis Schaefer exactly, but he, Francis I mean, Schaefer wasn't really an academic force. No, he wasn't. Yeah. So my, my dad's definitely more, more the academic than Schaefer, although he has also built community around him to a degree, just okay. on a smaller scale than Schaefer. Uh, so then that was the, the path I ended up taking. And so I came along when they were around 27 um, and my dad had his first job in Washington state, weirdly enough, next door to the whole Doug Wilson crew. So that's like a, that's like a weird connection to the past. They're like, oh yeah, Doug Wilson's brother was our neighbor. So we thought that was kind of weird, but I mean, they were kind of nice to us. So anyway, and uh, there's a Mark Driscoll connection in there too, but he, he was one of my dad's students actually um, before he was famous. Uh, he took all my dad's philosophy classes. So that's, that's, <laughs> did he read a book every day? Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe why is that an in joke? Or... Well, he claimed to, um, has oh, your dad <laughs> checked his work for any copyright infringement? Uh, good question. He didn't know to at the time. Mark was quite young. Uh, Mark, Mark was a young hotshot who was still going places at that time. But so, so yeah, that's a weird, weird connection. So yeah, some oddness out in, in Washington, but they knew they didn't want to stay in Washington because um, they lived in Pullman, which was kind of miserable little college town, and uh, there weren't any deciduous trees or colorful birds or anything. And so my mom was like, when, how soon can we move back to the Midwest? So um, that happened when I was about two. So Are I your no parents memory. both Midwesterners? Uh, mom grew up in Chicago, dad grew up in Pennsylvania, so Midwest or East. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, both of them, like they liked all four seasons. They liked colorful trees and birds. They're like, this is not going to be for us. So I, the result is that I have no memories of Washington State. All my memories begin in Michigan. Um, so that's where we moved. And we moved to the little town of Kalamazoo, which is, there really is a town called Kalamazoo. It's, it's um, a pretty cool town. I, it is, know, it is a pretty cool town. town. I, it's funny because I saw- Kellogg. Yeah, and I, I saw Eric Weinstein name checking it on Twitter once because uh, somebody sent him an instrument that came yeah, from Kalamazoo the, the or Gibson, The Gibson Guitar Factory used yeah, to be yeah. in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And Eric, Eric was just nerding out. This is so cool. I got something for Kalamazoo. I'm like, hey, that's me. That's Here's where something I'm from. from Kalamazoo. Yeah, exactly. Got a Hebrew name. Yeah. Uh, so Western Michigan University, which um, it's it it's small in the scheme of universities, but there's dad, also a Kalamazoo College, right, in Kalamazoo. Yeah, too. so uh, it's a, a double college. college town. Yeah. Well, right. There's yeah, there's a Kalamazoo College and there's a Kalamazoo Community College. So yeah, it's it it's you know it's a, a university town. Um, so then my dad really made or helped make that uh, their philosophy master's program what it was and it became kind of a magnet for um, for young Christian academics all around the country to come and study, which was interesting because um, it had been kind of a magnet because Quentin Smith was there and he was a pretty well-known atheist philosopher. So previously, a lot of people would sort of make pilgrimage to WMU to study with Quentin. Uh, but then as my dad came in and built his reputation there, then it, it, the ballots began sort of shifting and they started getting more Christian students, which... And um, it's a state university. It's not yeah, a religious school. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, not all of dad's colleagues were um, equally happy about that. Uh, but he was such a valued member of the department that, it, you know, they just couldn't really do anything about it. So, uh, so then, yeah, it, it, it was odd for me as a child growing up because that was, that was my bubble. I, I, I grew up in this 
this academic bubble, really. And so, um, yeah, I was homeschooled. And so we, I mean, we knew people, homeschooling families in our community who had all the usual kind of homeschool trappings. And, and I had some of that too, like in terms of the media I, I listened to or the music I liked and that kind of thing. Um, but I was like in the world of homeschooling, but not of it because my, my real world was the world of academia. So I was, it's, I was in a bubble within a bubble in, in some sense. Um, so there's a little of my story. You can interrogate further at any, any well, point. What, what was, where, what kind of churches did you go to growing up? And I've know, only, go ahead. So, sorry, keep going. Well, because often, I mean, churches are generally speaking, middle brow or lower and highly intelligent academic people, um, you know, that can be a little tricky for them. So yeah, so churches, that's a, a really interesting journey that my mom and dad took. I mean, before I even really came along, because like I said, they were, um, they, I mean, they, they didn't deconstruct, but they were, they were kind of going back and I would say re-examining their, their fundamentalist upbringing and thinking, okay, what do we want to keep? What, what do we feel like we need to leave behind? Um, you know, what was good and valuable in that background that we can carry with us through our careers, through the rest of our lives and pass on to our children? And what do we feel like was not so essential? And all of that thinking and wrestling took them to Anglicanism and they fell in love with liturgy and sacrament. My mom more so than my dad. My dad is more of, still more of a Baptist at heart. Um, but mom came to take on things like the real presence and, and that sort of thing. And so that journey began for them really when they were, I, I mean, I think it, it began in Pennsylvania and then it deepened when they went to grad school at Vanderbilt in Nashville and they met some high church Southern types um, who, you know, introduced them to alcohol and that, that, that kind of thing. So they, they had that sort of grad school coming of age phase, you know. At, um, at what age were you baptized? I was baptized when I was, um, I, I think I was five, five or six. Huh. So kind of Why? splitting the difference between. Uh, well, it's, it's a whole story. I'm getting or, well, to that. Maybe you, maybe you come to intellectual awareness much earlier than most Well, people, okay. So, I, I mean, this is, this is interesting. So when they came to, to Michigan, they began looking for Anglican churches because by now this is what the kind of church they were looking for. Um, and so they found this little tiny, it, you know, it's, it, it, ha it looks like a one-room schoolhouse. Uh, so it's this, this little country church design kind of on the, on the wrong side of the tracks in our town, actually. But inside is this beautiful little liturgical space with an altar and, and whatever. Um, but it was kind of small and cliquish, a lot of old people, um, a couple families here and there. So when mom and dad came breezing in with little me in tow, the people there were sort of like a family with a child, you know, who, who are these these young people and what do they mean to, to do in our church? Um, but I mean, they were already pretty small and mom and dad were kind of like young blood and mom could play the organ. So they just kind of installed themselves and were like, we're here, we like liturgy, we're willing to serve you if you're willing to have us. And so like, humph. and the priest kind of looked at me, he's like, has she been baptized? And they said, no, no, she hasn't. 
well, I, I think she should be baptized. And my dad said, well, I don't think a little water is going to do anything at this point in time. So, so that's they, not they like, very sacramental. <laughs> well, that's the thing. That's what I mean when I said my dad was really, I mean, my dad was a Baptist at heart, but, but he preferred the aesthetics of the liturgy, right, at the sacrament. Um, and I mean, my mom never came around to pay to baptism either. So in that sense, they've always, they both remained pretty Baptist. So they were like, we want her to be believers baptized after she's actually made a decision to, to come to Christ. So I became a Christian when I was four. Um, so then I, I spent the next year or so being catechized. And uh, so then, I, yeah, I know. I was serious, though. I took it seriously. And, and even my mom wasn't sure. My mom kind of wrote down the whole account of it. Um, but so then I was four. And I, I was like, I yeah, I want to be a Christian. And I had deep conversations with her about this. Um, so then I was believers baptized in the Anglican church. And that kind of set the tone for my whole brand. <laughs> you know, it was just sort of, uh, sort of launched me. And then I was confirmed when I was seven. So that's the only church I've ever known. Like I, I grew up in that church doing the, like 1928 Book of Common Prayer, falling apart 1940 Anglican hymnals, um, the same, like the same service every week. Like the prayers are burned into my memory. Um, you know, genuflecting at the right time, going up to the rail, crossing herself. That, so that's my, um, you know, that was my participatory knowing, right? To, to use a verbaicism. Um, that was how church was communicated to me. The problem was that it didn't give me any community because- how, like how, said, What was average attendance like? Uh, well, I mean, back in the day, we might have gotten up to 15 people or maybe, maybe like between 15 and 20 people a week. Mm -hmm. uh, that's when it was booming, <laughs> yeah. you know, because wow, here's cool. the thing. It was an ACC. So Anglican Catholic or continuing Anglican. And that's that was like a splinter group. Um, so, you know, there were all these theological fights back in the 90s. Women's ordination was a big um, splintering issue. So they broke away, but they- Did they break away from Catholics or break away from Episcopalians? Episcopalians, I, uh -huh. I believe. I need to look yeah. back. Or, well, history. yeah, the Catholics didn't ordain women. So that, yeah, all right. That no, the Catholics that never question. did. Yeah. But yeah, it was, it was an Episcopalian thing. And occasionally we would get an Episcopalian refugee uh, who would sort of come through. It's like, oh, I've been looking for a conservative Anglican church. I'm so happy I found you guys. Da, da, da. Um, so that they would hang around and, and donate until we had some- incredibly petty turtle squabble and, and the person would leave uh, so we've just been dying in slow motion all my life really and uh, it's only by the grace of god that there even is still a building and there even are still any people there uh, so it's basically just my folks and two or three other people and the priest at this point um, so we realized pretty quickly that there wasn't going to be community there so that's when we started trying to plug into the evangelical homeschooling community. So I had like, I, you know, early on, I began sort of compartmentalizing my life. It, so it was a little odd and confusing for me as a, as a kid. Um, did you go to youth group or anything like that at like bigger I, I churches tried. in town or something? I didn't expect yeah. your sentence to end right there. Keep going. <laughs> so, sorry. sorry. I, uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, there was, a, there was a Baptist church uh, and well, there were a couple different churches actually where I tried like little kids groups and girls groups and choirs and that sort of thing. Um, so that, that was a good experience for me. It, it, it sort of got me mingling with other little kids my age and it gave me some practice singing in a choir. 
Um, and that helps to nurture my love for music, which has been a, a lifelong passion. Um, but I don't, I don't know that any of those, like none of those friendships really stuck, I think, in the way that my mom was hoping because she felt guilty. She's like, oh, I need, Bethel doesn't have any friends. I need to, <laughs> I need to take Bethel to churches and plug her in so she can make friends. But I think I was always a little too much of an oddball to, uh, uh, to make lasting friendships that way. Um, but, but so yeah, I, I did a little of that. Um, and and we, we, we got to know a couple families in the area who are still friends to this day. And my mom also began at, actually it was, it was 911, the year of 911. I remember this really vividly, 2001, she began hosting hymn sings at our house um, where all the local homeschooling families would come and we would sing all the Baptist hymns. So this was my, my like kind of double heritage. So I had all the Anglican heritage from my church and then all the all the Baptist evangelical heritage from the kind of hymns mom and dad grew up with. And that's what we would play and sing with the homeschooling families. And we would all just gather and mom would play the piano and we would sing. And 2001, it was, I think it was October. So right after the attacks and I still have this memory of us all singing um, America the Beautiful. And it was this very uh, profound moment as we were all thinking about 911. So that's that's sort of the landmark moment as I look back in, in my life. How far were you homeschooled? All the way. All the way K through 12. Yeah. Yep. And what was college like, that transition to college? Well, I got a, I was a, a faculty brat, so I got a discount um, at Western Michigan. So I, I took like half my, well, maybe not half, I took a number of my philosophy classes with my dad. So that was fun. Um, and I mean, they were they were really good classes. I mean, not that I'm biased, but he's, he's a, an excellent professor. Um, and that, but it was fun to also take classes from his colleagues because his colleagues were these sort of crusty old liberal philosophy types. Um, and, and so it was fun. Like I had my intro philosophy course. I had this old existentialist guy and, and we would- Did you major in philosophy? With, yeah, I double majored in philosophy and math. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought I was going to be a philosopher. I mean, like ever since I was a kid, it was like the family business. You know, I, <laughs> I, I just assumed that's what I was going to do. Um, but then the crash happened and, and mom and dad started fretting. I mean, I think they probably, their hair partly turned gray from worrying about my dad's grad students because um, it's so hard to find work in philosophy. So they got nervous and they, they said, look, you, you, you could do this, but you might want to try something where you'd have a little bit more security. So there's a PhD program in math here at Western where there, there wasn't a PhD program in philosophy. There was the master's program that dad had helped to build. Um, but then I would have had to move away somewhere else to finish a PhD. And so they said, you could do that or you could go for a PhD in math instead. And that would enable you to keep living here and saving your stipend if you got a fellowship and that would put you in a better place um, financially. So I tell some of that story in, in the coming out piece that I wrote for the Substack. Um, and you so- You had to use those words, didn't you? I, <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, people liked it. They, they thought it was cute. Um, so, so I thought about it and because I've always been this very sort of risk averse person, I thought, oh yeah, yeah, that would be good. I wanna be safe. You know, I, I wanna be secure. I don't wanna uh, possibly not have a job. And I like the idea of living at home because I was really attached to my folks. So um, it, it, this weird kind of left turn because I never really particularly liked math as a, as a kid. Um, I, 
I took a left turn into math and I had a couple professors who were pretty inspiring there and who helped to guide me. And I was like, okay, well, maybe, maybe I could do this. Maybe this is interesting. So then I kind of, I lost myself at doing a PhD in math through my, my twenties. Um, and that was very, uh, I didn't really have any issues at all. In fact, one of the things I liked about math was that unlike different humanities disciplines, I never had any, you know, ideological friction or whatever with my profs. I never had to worry, oh no, are they not going to like my politics in this paper I wrote or whatever. It's just numbers, 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 math, 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 very no-nonsense type people. So, you know, that worked out and I got the PhD and then I realized I don't really have the chops to do math research. I'm not really passionate about doing math research. I'm not going to go out there and gun for um, high-profile jobs. What I am passionate about is teaching and kids. So um, that's that's what I'm doing now. Very now overeducated math teacher, in other words. Like, yeah, but I mean, I just I, I just realized what I wanted to do. Um, that's good. What, what I had I had always wanted to do, and I mean, my poor dissertation advisor, she just. She couldn't understand. I can uh, to, imagine. <laughs> uh, oh, man, that's a whole thing, which I won't get into. But, but so um, so then I started applying for high school jobs. And now I'm here in an undisclosed uh, rural location. And uh, I've been wrangling high school kids for a year. And it's been one of the most joyous years of my life, really. Uh, so that that's kind of where I am now. Yeah, very overqualified high school well, math teacher. <laughs> one of my favorite teachers that I ever had was one of my, my calculus teacher in high school. And he had a PhD and he said the same thing. Like, you know, I just enjoyed teaching more than I enjoyed doing the other stuff. Yeah. And uh, he was a fabulous teacher an overqualified public high school calculus teacher. And I still remember him. And so, you know, if that's for whatever that's worth. Yeah. Yeah, so, that's 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 my my goals. So where did Esther O'Reilly come from? So this is this is like your life and then bleeding into your career and how you got to where you are now. But where did internet uh, where did the internet version of you come from? And and how did you end up as you know having your Twitter and being the the PVK channel colonizer and all of those sorts of things? Whatever. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I just I I just had a blog like everyone else back back in the remember blogs yeah <laughs> i had a wordpress blog <laughs> WordPress Wait, when did blogs. you start it um i was 17 i think 17 or 18 okay. um and what what did you start writing about southern gospel music actually uh believe it or not so so this was i went through a weird phase in high school where i um i i i, I was struggling to to make friends in person um just for a variety of reasons, because I, I was in this academic bubble and I knew a lot of stuff and I didn't have anybody to really talk with about it. So I kind of was trying to channel this by going online and trying to find my people online. Um, yeah, that took me in some weird directions and the fact that I had a social IQ of about 15 didn't really help matters. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's so, uh, but, uh, I stumbled into Southern gospel community and just found that really interesting learning about that music, that history, and met some interesting quirky people there. Um, and that led to some odd 
interpersonal places, which I won't get into. But um, that was where I began writing, was, was writing about music. So I really was a niche blogger for, for several years. That was basically what I did. I would go to concerts, I would review albums. Um, and I, you know, I kind of go back to music I liked and contemporary Christian music and bring some of that, some of those tastes over as well. Um, but then I gradually started writing about different things, just movies or books or whatever. And I forget when I placed my first um, freelance piece at some Christian outlet somewhere, because um, my mom was also kind of a, a political pundit. She, she ran a sort of a watering hole group blog for some early years, first things, American conservative types. So that was part of my dinner table conversation. So I grew up having strong political opinions. And so I just started blogging and freelancing those. Um, but I was still really young as a writer. I, you know, I, I, my craft was, was in a very embryonic state at that point. Um, but I just kept working on it and I kept getting better kind of on my own. And then I was invited to join the Pathos channel after Peterson hit the scene because I was captivated by Peterson and wrote a few things there that caught the eye of an editor at Pathos. And he said, well, why don't, why don't you join Pathos? So I did that and then almost immediately wrote my debate uh, assessment when Peterson and Harris had their conversations. And that kind of went viral. So I'd been on Twitter for a while, but it was just a tiny little account. I didn't really have a following or a platform or whatever. So then that uh, Pathos thing really sort of was the first domino and then all the other doors started opening after that. Um, what was that, that piece called? Um, I think it was called uh, Sam Harris Ask Questions Jordan Peterson Can't Answer, which is a good title if I say so myself. That was not a bad title. Um, and that's a, that, that's no, a the nice other way around. Jordan Peterson asked questions Sam Harris couldn't answer. Wasn't that it? Uh, no, no, I think it was. I think it was the first. I think it was the first way around, because I, I think I think the way I was my, my takeaway was that Sam was pushing or interrogating Peterson and trying to force him to um, trying to nail him down in various ways uh, that Peterson either couldn't or, or wouldn't commit. So, so yeah, I think I think it was it was. Yeah, that. It is Sam Harris. Yeah, yeah, it is. Question it is. Jordan you're, Peterson. Yeah, you're right. yeah, and that, that, that's that's a nice piece in various ways. I, I you know I still like things about it. I've definitely grown since then um, in a lot of ways. And and I, there's a little uh, it, that was when I first discovered Douglas Murray. So like all this, you know, that was when the IDW was new and things were fun and exciting. And so I kind of came in on that wave. Um, that it's been interesting to watch that whole thing disintegrate and fall apart um so yeah it was around then that i began trying to build my craft and earn bylines at different outlets writing on things all kinds of things other than peterson so i mean i, I did get asked to write peterson related stuff for a while but i really had a, a whole reservoir of of thoughts and ideas and experiences that i wanted to draw on um to, to i mean become a generalist essentially is, is what i became but I had to work with editors. I had to I had to discipline my prose. They had to learn to take to take advice and, and learn what to keep and what to throw away and how to mold my style to different outlets. So that was a sharpening process over years. Um, so that's that's led me to where I am now. And the Twitter has been an interesting element of that. It probably has probably taken over to a greater extent than I, I 
would have predicted or maybe wanted. Uh, but it's a little bit of a tiger by the tail phenomenon at this point, which I, I'm going to have to figure out as I move forward. Well, why do you say that? Because I, um, because I'm addicted to it, and and I, like a lot of people are, I think. Um, I just I, I'm just sort of addicted to the, the dopamine hit of, of 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 scrolling and scrolling, and and even it's not even necessarily so much my things getting likes. It's it's more the it's more the hit of being in communication with people, um, feeling like you're part of a a virtual community. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact and that, that you're rising in influence and status among so, a mean, crowd I, of people that you kind of know and kind of don't and, kinda, and become yes. increasingly aware of you. Yeah. So, somewhat. Yeah. Although, I mean, it, as much as anything, it's the it's the real relationships or, or friendships that I formed there. You know, genuinely like minded, um, interesting people uh, who who I, I get and they get me and will DM. And so then you know, Twitter DMs has come to replace email to a great extent in, in how I communicate with people. So, um, you know, I, th I think a lot of my life has been a search for human connection and it's been a search for my people, right? Like like-minded people who, who, who get me um, and that I feel like I, I can fit in with and communicate with. And through Twitter, that's, that's something that I found. But then the problem is that I, I'm partly living on Twitter and that's not really sustainable and it's bad for my, my sleep and all of these things you need to function as, as a human person. And so I don't really know how I've done it, but somehow I have managed to hold down a day job. Somehow I have managed to actually plug into a physical community um, and, and invest in real live children you know, who I, I'm teaching while still maintaining this whole Twitter thing. Um, and I mean, I guess if you asked me how I do it, I would say I don't sleep. That's, that's, that's sort of, maybe that's what's been sacrificed. Um, but that, that as, comes- As my Twitter DMs will, will testify to. Yeah, maybe. Although I, I don't DM you nearly as much as I used to, or as, as much as I DM other people. Uh, so, but, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how that's happened. And I- if I'm I on California tab, it'll be like, why are you still up? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's, there's projects that have languished that I, I know that if I wasn't so addicted to Twitter, I would, I would be able to do more. I'd be able to write more. I'd probably write, I'd do more long form things. The Substack has really been good for me in that respect um, because it's forced me to, to create substantive content on a rolling regular basis because otherwise people aren't going to pay me. Um, so that's proved to be a nice side hustle um, in the past year. Uh, I've made like five, six thousand dollars or so in the wow, first year. Good so. for you. Yeah, those that those a surprise. And, and um, uh, you know, I have, I have a few high ish status uh, readers there. Uh, so that, that's fun. But I mean, to be honest, I I value I value every reader. So it's 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 kind of fun and cool if. If, if a big name guy is, is reading my stuff and it's, it's kind of, I get that thrill of like, wow, so it's, so it's reading my stuff. Um, but really it's like the notes that I get from the people who are just like, this is so helpful to me, or I, I really get so much out of this work and I know I'm a nobody or whatever, but thank you, this means so much to me. And I'm like, no, I like hearing from 
from anybody, just just anybody, normal person who likes my stuff. This is good. This is my my goal in life is is to uh, I want my writing to scale in that sense. So 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 okay. I, I, I'm never going to stop calling you Esther. I mean, I've trained myself. Okay. But um, <laughs> uh, what do you want? Um, I I want to. What do I want? Um, I want to love on people, <laughs> which sounds really mushy, uh, but that like, I just love people so much. Um, and that's, that's what I, that's what I'm about, whether I'm teaching or, um, or writing. And I want to show people how much God loves them. Uh, and, you know, so sometimes, sometimes that, that comes out in, in odd ways or, or dark ways. Uh, but I want to I want to show how how Christianity can can make sense across all dimensions of life. And I want to show how at, at the end of it is is this this all encompassing love that um, that desires to draw men to God, that desires to give hope to the hopeless and rest to the restless and all that good stuff, right? So that's that's kind of, that's what I'm about. I, I wanna, uh, you know, make Christian humanism great again in that sense. Have you, have you been able to find a church in your new place? No, not really. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's, that's, that's, that's an issue. And I, I, I know I'm not alone in that. Um, there's, uh, the, there's, there's some strange dynamics, like theological dynamics that I can't really get into on, on YouTube there. Uh, but I mean, my, the community that I found wasn't, wasn't quite what I had thought it would be when I got here. I mean, I've been blessed by it in many ways, um, but it just hasn't, um, hasn't quite, yeah, I'll, I'll just sure. leave it there. It hasn't okay. quite been what no, I thought. No, you don't have to get too detailed because there's yeah, still people yeah. on the other end of this thing. Sure. Well, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about when we were talking about doing this convo is this spiritual gift that I have of, um, you know, sort of collecting misfit uh misfit people who i mean it's just true yeah I mean, you look at the bridges of meeting discord i mean sam um you know and and when i say misfit it's it's not that people don't have social skills or people can't manage families or or it is some or, of that it, it is, is some, some of that, that. but i it, it's in fact a a a gathering of random types of misfitting too i mean that 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 misfit gift of mine just goes and and scales and everything and and so I, I think was part that of, true before um, internet, Paul? Dumb. Oh, it's intergenerational, my friend. My grandfather gathered misfits. My father gathered misfits. I gather misfits. This is there's a lineage here. Well, to some extent, that's my lineage as well. Uh, I mean, I, I watched my folks gather some misfits in that sense, and and now I I I've gathered a few of my own misfits. So. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that was part of um, that's part of why I connected with with Peterson because Peterson's a, a therapist. Um, and Peterson loves people, and so that's like I I kind of identified with that right away because um, you know I think I, I share that with Peterson that, that Peterson will become immediately interested in whoever he's talking to. And it's not a put on. He really is interested because he really cares about that person. And uh, you know, I, I think I'm the same way that I I really 
I immediately want to get to know whoever this person is that, that I'm talking to. Um, and I think they, they can feel that. Yeah, Peterson, you know, you can't go to one of those VIP meet and greets after one of his events and not see that. Enjoyment. Yeah, yeah, that's that's he's got a gift for that. Like I've never seen I've known pastors that can work a line and I've seen politicians, but that's one of the things that is quite extraordinary about Peterson. And he is in many ways a misfit. Um, you know, he recently had a yep. serious misstep on Twitter, which um you know I, think I, I wrote a thread about it where i think i teased out what he wanted to say but now I, he's never I think he, you know i think that there was something down there that was worth saying but it was like oh, oh no <laughs> and then you know another tweet i've had i've told my staff to change the password you know <laughs> save me from myself and um okay but but no he is in many ways a misfit he's not a he's not a and and you can see that by his resume he's not a pure academic he wants to. A lot of academics would by no means continue go to maintain. Go on Dr. Oz. <laughs> right. Oh, go. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I go on Dr. Oz or maintain a um, a clinical practice on the side. Um, I mean, it's he, he's obviously a, a very high energy person, but but yeah, part well, of. It, sorry, I, I mean, I was just going to say, it, yeah, it is sad to me to see how he's lost everything with with this this status yeah. rocket because. I mean, when I looked at when I look at those old lectures, those old classroom lectures of his, that also hits very close to me as the daughter of a professor, because um, I see my my father to, to some degree in Peterson and yeah. Peterson and my father, my mother. I think his personality reminds me of their personalities in various ways. Um, and my dad also has just that gift, like Peterson has, that he can connect immediately with a small room of students, and it's just kind of electric. Um, and so. Um, for Peterson to lose that, I mean, I think about what it would do to my dad to lose that. Yeah. It, he just wouldn't be the same. It'd be like he'd lost a limb or something. Um, and, and so I, I mean, I hope Peterson is happy. I, I don't know if he is happy. It's an interesting question. <laughs> Yeah, it's well, and, what is happening for Jordan Peterson? Another common ingredient is, um, intellectual passion or something like that what, whatever exactly is the right way to describe that that doesn't sound too pompous but getting really like that that's when i look at how i ended up the way i am i see multiple generations especially on my dad's 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 line of getting very intellectually passionate about somewhat obscure subjects that can have a slightly isolating but yet invigorating effect um, and oh, each, each generation has its own thing, yeah. right? And I'm sort of the <laughs> inheritor of a bunch of these things and I'm figuring yes. out my own things. And that it, it's fun because you can find other people, hopefully maybe sometimes, and there's nothing more fun than a good conversation about something you care about. But yeah. yet it's so rare to find that. And, and there's a lot of times where there are people that, you know, you're really close to, but if you don't share that intellectual passion, it always feels like part of yourself is missing from your interactions with them. Yeah, and I, so I have to like, I mean, I have different people with whom I share different parts of 
because I have multiple intellectual passions. So it's like, okay, well, this is the friend with whom I can geek out about this thing. That's the friend with whom I can geek out about the, the other thing. And then, you know, you just- And this of, is the friend I just have to pretend to be normal. <laughs> yes, right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, think, I think part of what I've always wanted for Estuary is obviously sort of a, another space um, where, you know, people can find some things. And, and I think some of it, some of it connects with, with this desire for, you can, you can nerd out. You just have to be careful uh, how large the estuary is and um, how tolerant some of the people are of, of your, of your passions. But um, yeah. And uh, my problem when I was in high school was that I, I had no, I, I had no conception of how to like how to contextualize oh no I used a Tim Keller word how to contextualize my, my passions to the um the, the audience at hand or, or the moment at hand I was just kind of like randomly trying to plug into blog communities or whatever um and, and start talking so you know it was a bit of an autistic thing I guess um which I mean if I am autistic I'm a pretty high functioning autistic but you know, there's there's strengths of that in my family. So looking back, probably that was an issue that I had at, in high school, and then just the growing up process, I, I had to work that out over a, a period of years. But hopefully, hopefully that's better. better well, being now. in a room full of high school kids is going to teach you a lot. Yeah, and it might have taught me a lot of bad things. That it might have emotionally damaged me in ways that I'm, I'm grateful to have avoided. So. Um, no, you know, I mean, I, now as the teacher. Oh, 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 now is, well, now as the teacher, I mean, this has been a cool journey for me because now, and I, I mean, I had experience, I, I had a lot of teaching experience in grad school already, actually, because I, I, I taught undergrad students for my, uh, my teaching fellowship. So, I mean, I came with several years of that under my belt, but then high schoolers is a whole, like, yet another world yet again. Um, so, but it's been cool to feel like I'm coming into my own as a leader, um, and like, wow, okay, I really am the adult in the room in, in more ways than one here. And these kids are really like looking at me to be the, the cool authoritative voice. Um, so then it's been cool to realize that I can do that and I can be that. So that's, that's been an important growing up process for me. All right, so on the subject of things that start out small, grew kind of big, had a lot of influence, hit some invisible wall, then began to unravel and bicker with itself. Do you want to talk about the intellectual dark web or Tim Kellerdom? Those are two very different topics. Like which? I mean, yeah, well, they have a lot of similarities in a certain way. I'll let well, you pick. Okay, you so, can choose so your adventure. The, the Tim Kellerdom might be, it might be a little more interesting. It might be a little bit more apt to the, um, the, the broader topic of evangelism at the post-postmodern age, um, yeah. or however you want to sort of hang that frame. Although um, the IDW is strangely relevant to that conversation too. I feel like that's the, the, uh, the horseshoe. Uh, horseshoe effect of that one. But anyway, yeah. Let's... I can tie, I can find a cute way to tie them together if we have time. But um, so, yeah, we, we can't kind of get to that a little bit because the, I mean, the whole, the whole Tim Coward discourse um, is revolving around whether whether his moment has passed or whether his model is a good working model for evangelism going forward um, or a good model for cultural engagement. And 
So, I mean, Paul, I know you have a long history with Keller, a long history with his work. Um, and as a missionary, you, you, I mean, you probably borrowed a lot of ideas from that model. Um, so some people like James Wood, who's a, a young pastor, church planter, and now a, a scholar intellectual, was very influenced by Keller. At a CRC institution. Um, I, was he? I, I didn't know He's that. going to Redeemer University. Oh, which, okay. Which, which was the, um, which was the, when Canadians found Calvin University too expensive, they started Redeemer. <laughs> okay, interesting. Um, but so, you know, he was very interested by Keller back, or, or not interested, influenced, sorry, late at night, if they're influenced by Keller back in the day, but then wrote, has, has begun writing some things saying, I think we need to depart from his model. So obviously, Paul, you've been conducting your whole strange, wild and woolly evangelistic experiment um, where, I mean, I, you might sort of, I guess you could see yourself as, as doing some Kellerish contextualization now at the estuary with, with all the, the people coming over from Peterson world. Um, but I, I don't really, I see you as really doing your own thing. I, I don't just see you as trying to copy paste a, a Keller model. Um, yeah, your, I, your Bible studies on the internet have a whiteboard in the background, not the Manhattan skyline, which is. <laughs> oh, <laughs> the, yeah. I, you know, with Keller, well, in terms of me, when I first got to this church, the whole classes had a junket out to Willow Creek. And so I was supposed to do that. That doesn't work with misfits. And then in 2006, I visited Redeemer Press and they had a sort of a little under the radar um, conference to sort of teach you the secret sauce of Redeemer, that doesn't work for misfits. And so, you know, any, any of these off the shelf things to make living stones, not living stones, just doesn't work um, for, for, lots of, for lots of reasons. But I mean, Keller, it, it's hard to understand Keller without understanding a lot of the urban ministry um, elements that were going on in the 70s that my father was a part of. These were deeply conservative reformed people who were um, doing racial reconciliation. They were, they were doing all this stuff in the 70s. They're doing urban ministry before ur urbanity got cool after Friends and Sex in the City. So this was very much the same group of people that my father was a part of. And so I grew up in a, in a context like that. And so for a lot of the, the things that people are shooting at Keller, it's, it's some of that route. But I do think that um, Aaron Wren's point about the change in polarity of the American culture is deeply true because you know, really all the way up until 9-11 in many ways, although it was of course changing before then, during the Cold War, to be a good American, you going to church was part of the package of being a good American. And that was, and being a Protestant was part of that package really up until Roosevelt. And after Roosevelt, you know, you could, it's okay to be a Catholic, it's okay to be a Jew, but you know, Bible, you know, church going American was, and then after, you know, at the end of the Cold War, that whole thing started to unravel. And then with the 9-11 attacks, the new atheists just pounced. And suddenly, although there was a big, if not very lasting surge in church attendance, 
right yes. after September 11th. And, and well, Tim that's Keller's where the reason for God grew. comes in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tim, Tim Keller's church made it on the map because of that. And, and I think, you know, part of, part of what we have to look at here is sort of tribal inferiority in herb in, in blue church spaces for evangelicals, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. suddenly high status people in New York city were going to a PCA church. So if you just look at the labels, you know, maybe, maybe conservative evangelicalism can retake America's cities. And Although now it what's is happening. interesting that Presbyterianism had the history of being one of the acceptable WASPy mainline brands yes. for a long time right. in a way that a mega church or a Baptist church didn't. Right. And most people don't know the difference between PCA and PCUSA. <laughs> right. But PCA, pretty PCUSA conservative. PCUSA doesn't count. No. Yeah. No. Well, exactly. And that's the whole, I mean, this is a, I mean, my biggest, my biggest disappointment with this book which will not be um, unknown to the Chicago uh, meetup uh, circle. I'm, I'm just triggering Hank right yet, yeah. right now. Um, put it away. This, you know, my biggest, no, put it away. Our biggest disappointment with this is, in my opinion, she misses the real story, which is not that, um, is not that, conservative evangelical Americans are patriotic in a particular kind of way and want to express that in their church life. It's, it's what happened to the, the patriotism that was the dominant status quo that gets overturned in the counterculture. And so the guy who said, you know, the real story should have been Jesus and John Lennon. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's the real interesting flip. So now with Keller. So basically this, this, this bridge that Keller was able to make after 9-11, yep, that's what's falling apart as, yep. as, as the two sides go further and further against and, each other. And Trump. Tr Trump is yes. a, lot, a, a lot to do with it. And not just like Trump as a symptom of something, but Trump as an as a actual force unto himself. So when I was in college and going to a kind of embattled Christian fellowship at a Ivy League institution over there, relatively close to New York City, um, I, it was a very similar environment to what Keller was trying to do, you know, down in New York City, where we were trying to it, it, you know, evangelicalism in that context turns up its intellectual credentials and fronts that as much as it can and fronts its sort of general pro-social, pro-establishment um, morals as much as it can and sort of kind of keeps the controversial um, mm -hmm. sexual or whatever morals, uh, you know, not like it's, not that it's denying them, but it just, you know, keeps those in the back seat, not the front seat. And that this was sort of like the goal of my Christian fellowship was to A, be a safe harbor for Christians who wound up at such an institution, but B, be trying to be a good public face of what is um, a looked down upon cultural institution by the elite blue church, but trying to present a, a more friendly more respectable version of that thing 
to them in ways that are in you know, contextualized. Yeah, that there's so many problems with with that, and which is I think the cracks are are now showing. And the thing is that I Wood was very Wood was very gentle in his piece and very gracious, and he wanted to frame it like, well, Keller was the right man for a moment, but the moment has passed. I I was willing to be a little more forthright and say it, there were always issues with that. There were always flaws, and so like it was never a great idea to to have that like you described it very well there sam well we'll keep the other stuff like we won't exactly hide it but we won't front it either and it, it seemed motivated as i look through keller's work i see this consistent um allergy to fundamentalism it's like oh gosh anything but fundamentalist you know kind of avant we don't want to be seen that way we want to put as much distance as we can between us and the the backwater fundamentalist people because fundamentalism, if you do the free association in the elitist mind, it gets bound up with racism and anti-science and, and all the, the, the buzzwords, right? Um, you know, if you think about the rider and the elephant, that's that's where the elephant goes with that. So Keller was trying to um, get away from that. And that's what led to things like um, biologos and all that stuff. Uh, and the ironic thing is that you know in his his i think kind of blinkered haste to contextualize for blue state types or, or blue church elite types um he missed a actually a mission field of people who are not christians at all uh but are definitely not blue people at all and who need who needed the gospel contextualized for for them as well um and it's it's almost as if in keller's mind well there's the there's the red state fundamentalist types who are kind of racist and need to be lectured about their racism and their anti-intellectualism and then there's the the blue state secular types which i'm all interested in reaching and i'm thinking although we, part part of <laughs> his part of his main audience and part of his main ministry was people who came from red fundamentalist land, but had some intellectual chops and found people themselves- People with baggage, yes, yes. And then found themselves in blue church land, right. but you know, were you know, interested in careers in academia or medicine or law or other elite blue church style careers and places. Correct, but and that's then the were, But then needed a church to go to that was still at least somewhat um, authentic and somewhat in keeping with their background. And so I actually think that a lot of Tim Keller's mission field was less the unchurched people in Manhattan, but the churched people who ended up in Manhattan. That's a really shrewd comment. And I mean, in a way, this sort of ties back to my own heritage and my own story in some sense, because um, what you're describing there is a type that I understand very well, and I, I, I encountered it in different places. You know, it's, it's well, I would type. put you and your family in that category as part of as part uh, of what I was saying. Well, well, no, that that that's kind of the interesting thing. That's sort of where I'm going to go with this. Is is that um, th no that that type that you're sort of describing is well, I mean. There, there are a couple different directions that somebody like that could go. Um, somebody like that could go in a sort of a, a chip on the shoulder, um, fundamentalist baggage, like, ooh, ooh, ooh. But yes, so embarrassing. I know I was raised young earth creationist. Can you believe it? Oh, yes, of course, 
I believe evolution because I believe Have you read this book by does. Francis Collins? Have you read yes. this book by Francis Collins? Oh my gosh, Francis Collins is my homeboy. Yes. I let's read talk Francis about- Collins yeah. and I actually got a lot out of that book in college. So I've been there and done that. I don't need yeah, to yeah, yeah. the bus okay. too much. He was helpful at a certain point. In it's, my oh life. gosh. Yes. All my, my embarrassing Facebook answer or whatever. Okay. So you have people with the sort of church back home baggage um, who, who are sort of desperate to appear smart like, no, I'm a smart Christian. I'm not like those Christians over there. Um, and unfortunately, I think there, are el- there were elements of Coward's approach and Coward's model that, um, that fed some of the more unworthy impulses in, in people like that and, and bred a kind of a, a tendency to punch down uh, and to, to be, you know, that, that distancing thing. What was interesting in my, what I, what I saw in my own folks growing up was they, they did, they had in fact left behind their elements of, of their upbringing. Um, I mean, they they weren't in fact young earth creationists, although they weren't theistic evolutionists either. Um, you know, they, they departed in some ways theologically, but they never punched down. And they taught me to, to never punch down. And uh, they said, you know, the fundamentalists got a lot of stuff right. The religious right got a lot of stuff right. I mean, that was, my mom kind of came of age. She marched to a Phyllis Schlafly. I mean, that, that so that's kind of part of their, the legacy of the heritage. So, you know, they taught me don't don't knock fundamentalism. You kind of came out of fundamentalism in some sense. We came out of fundamentalism in some sense. Um, and and so I look at those types, the types with, with baggage, the types with that chip on their shoulder, who frequently are slinging around things that they don't even understand very well because there's, there's usually sort of a Dunning-Kruger effect going on there where they're like, Oh yes, I'm so smart. I read a few books, and now I know everything. I'm like, <laughs> not really. Um, it's, it's so I. It, it's a bit of a struggle with me. My my struggle is not to disdain those people. So uh, you know that's that's my issue. <laughs> All right, I'm. I I was at Redeemer. I've known a lot of these people. I never saw really a big punching down. Um, a punching down on fundamentalists in that camp. I've seen a lot more CRC people do that. I've seen a lot more CRC I can believe people that. on the left do that. I never caught that vibe at all. From I listened from, from 2006 to 2009. I probably listened to every single sermon Tim Keller preached. I, I Up till 2012, I probably listened to every single thing he posted on the internet in terms of you know, I have thousands of dollars invested in Tim Keller sermons and <laughs> I hear I, it's expensive. Yeah. Uh, it was about two and a half bucks. a sermon. You should put them up on YouTube. That would have. <laughs> you, you can, but, but I, I, I completely disagree that there was a punching down. I think for a lot of people, Keller opened a way. Now what you said, Sam, I think is true. I think there are a lot of people in that movement who grew up in a fundamentalist church, went to New York City because they caught a big break for their career, knew that fundamentalism really didn't fit. And for them, Keller really worked well. When you went to, to, when you went to Redeemer Press, the two groups that were most evident were uh, people who were ladder climbers, young ladder climbers, and Asians who very much were the same. There were very few African-Americans the, the church planting movement, I think, struggled um, with African-Americans for some real reasons. The church definitely had a particular cultural footprint that they pursued. 
City Church San Francisco, the pastors of which I also knew um, before they, of course, did what they did. Um, but Park, there Park too, Street they, Church in Boston was also kind of similar. Which uh, one? Park Street Church in Boston. Which, which um, is the church of my deceased sister and my brother-in-law. And I think, as you know, I attended there for two years as well. Okay. I think, I think we, we figured that out one time that I probably met your sister. Yep. And, and so all of the people that, you know, came around and brought dishes when, um, you know, when my sister passed and everything. So I, 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 I don't think it's fair to stereotype this group of people as um, folks, you know, I, I think for them, this became a way to credibly maintain overall a, a fairly conservative, crunchy Christianity and a life in a deeply blue space all the way around. And I think that that really, I think that really worked. Keller's big shtick evangelistically was essentially to say to people, look, Christianity can get you your values better, the values that you actually hold better than, and it's more consistent than your secularity. And I think that's why Aaron, um, Aaron Wren is really onto something with his positive, neutral, negative. Which, because- by the way, Keller was really offended by that. So I don't know if you saw, but there was there was a tweet he reacted to to Wood's piece, and Keller said, "Look, when we first planted our church, um, they they were we were not welcomed. They were not happy to see us. And so anybody who thinks that I was starting to plant a church in a neutral world doesn't know what he's talking about." Yeah. And then he, he deleted it. And I- <laughs> But, but I think, so and I think that's probably fair because this, I mean, this typology that Ren has is definitely contextual in terms yeah. of zip code. Yeah. Because, and so in all fairness, so, so Keller very much felt himself doing a countercultural thing. And I think that's part of the reason that, again, a number of years ago, that you'd see him on MSNBC. You wouldn't see him on Fox. He was, I mean, he was, he was the guy that a guy like David Brooks would really connect with that kind of conservative, a David Brooks conservative. Now, uh, well, I don't know. And what that, that, that's an interesting, yeah, I was, I was a little surprised if you bring up David Brooks as your example, because he's sort of, I, so, I mean, what I, I remember in 2015 during the Republican primaries when Trump is surging in popularity and starting to win states, and it's actually seeming like, hey, this guy might even have a chance, and maybe even more than just a chance. I remember talking with my fellow, you know, Ivy League Christian fellowship friends, and all of us were like, what in the world is going on? You know, why, why, are, why are these chumps falling for this uh, huckster, right? Was our basic you know, view of the Trump phenomenon. Like, why are all of these Christian conservatives who we self-identified as and with, you know, being attracted to this guy who to us looks like, you know, I don't need to go into what he looks like from that perspective. And I think that honestly, as I look back on that, I think that there was a bigger divide and a bigger gap between people who would identify with conservative Christianity, but lived in a blue context and probably had a generally admirable opinion of Tim Keller and his ministry and were maybe even involved in something like it or similar and actual red people living in red places. 
And I think that this divide was very, it had been flying under the surface for a while and Trump just brought it to the fore. And I think that is, and not did he, he didn't just bring it to the fore, uh, to the fore, he exacerbated it and made it worse and turned it against itself in a way that Jeb Bush wouldn't have. Yeah, and, and Neil, Neil Shenvey had a, a tweet today or yesterday where he asked, okay, who is currently contextualizing the gospel for Trump supporters? Uh, not a trick question, like he wanted to know. And I mean, people tried, well, maybe John MacArthur or something like that, which, I mean, it was an interesting thread. But I mean, this kind of goes back to the my, my point earlier where, I mean, no, Keller wasn't, um, Keller wasn't thinking in terms of really contextualizing for everybody. He wanted to contextualize for a particular narrow subcontext. Yes. yes. Um, and, and so all kinds of people are missed there. And so when he'll present, he'll, he'll do his little kind of both and two-step, right? Well, Christians, they can care about life and, uh, and conservative sexuality, but we also care about the poor. We also care about racial reconciliation. We can be both and, and we're going to combine elements of liberalism and conservatism and but show that we care about woke issues and whatever. And I'm thinking there's a lot of people who are, are not Christians who, um, who would be turned off to hear woke speak <laughs> because they don't accept woke narratives and this is this is my cute horseshoe with the idw because i mean the, there are people in that whole um and then not not that they're necessarily people who like trump but ju just just in general i i think that little formula that keller has in his mind um leaves out whole swathes of people with way more nuanced and complicated views on this stuff hitting hitting Blaming Tim Keller for being woke is sort of like blaming George Washington for owning slaves. Well, I'm not, I mean. That, that wave comes after. And again, if you understand <laughs> Keller, coming out of second wave anti-racism in the 1970s, a lot of that language means different things. But the thing is that Keller's had, Keller's had time to observe and, and watch different trends and, and see how things have shifted. And, I mean, to be honest, I, I don't know that, um, I mean, I don't know that how, to what degree Keller would necessarily disagree with the, the current incarnation of, of wokeness. I, I think, you know, he just hasn't said a whole lot, but I would guess that his, a lot of his instincts tend leftward in, in those areas. Is it, is it woke to say racism is still around in American society? Um, no. I would want, I would just want that to be unpacked more. Um, oh, well, and Tim Keller loves to unpack. <laughs> yeah, well, but, uh, but when he has every, generally when he does unpack it, he says things that I think are not true. Like okay. he'll, he'll label certain things racism. And I'll be like, okay, we got issues here. Um, well, and he'll, I, I think racism. Racism is belief a whole beneath a whole bunch of things, but I don't this this idea. I mean, this is this is part of the um, the woke anti woke dynamic that um, to, to see Tim Keller in this light as somehow, you know, it, to see Tim Keller as woke is sort of like seeing Jordan Peterson as somehow alt right alt right. They they just I don't, don't really I don't know that that's a, I think categories. there's a disanalogy there. I 
I don't, I don't know because I, I think I think Keller might want to think of himself as as woke in some sense. I I would not I would not see that in the least. Okay. I mean, but I think he sees himself as like old school woke, which maybe is part of second wave anti-racism. I think he okay. and John McWhorter could sit down and have an amazing conversation. And I don't think there'd be a lot of disagreement between them. That I mean, that would be interesting. But um, I think also too, I hear uh, linguistically, I hear a lot of the sort of corporate guilt language sometimes when Keller speaks. And I, I see this with the homosexuality issue too. So there's a much quoted clip where he's talking to a historian who asks him, what does your church think about homosexuality? And Keller gives this whole big long answer and a lot of people kind of cite that, that as was a turning well point. contextualized. It, it's it's terrible. It's just awful. Six ways. You know how zero. Tim Keller's brother died? His brother? Yeah. Um, I think I I think I heard it. Was, was he was, was he it gay? AIDS? Was I, what did you... I have heard that. I don't know it for really? sure. I've that, heard it. I, I have never heard that before. That would be an interesting um, history there. So but... I think I think for Keller, these are these are deeply complex issues. And, and maybe maybe so, but the but. I mean, where and I was he's going a minister in the PCA. I mean, yeah, well, I mean, I know I believe I think, I've been reading up on that whole history, too. I think part but, of this is also generational, right? Yes. I, yeah, and, and, for sure. And that the times they are changing and Tim Keller is kind of steering the same course that he's tried to steer for a while. And that did very well in, say, the mid 2000s. But the seas and the tides are going in slightly different directions and the same tact suddenly looks very different in a different context. And I actually think that's really more his problem than wokeness or something like that. I'm not going to side with Paul too much, but I do kind of feel like wokeness isn't quite the right label for, for Keller. Well, and I don't, I mean, I don't necessarily use the the word woke a ton myself i like to go more for okay what what's the actual idea that i disagree with here what's the what's the substance on the table that, that i'm disputing because labels can be slippery and, and words that fudge like paul used, likes to say um i mean i think the way i would i would put it is that i see some left-leaning tendencies but um before i scoot off i just want to kind of give an example of, of because people will, will often say, well, Keller's thinking like an evangelist. He's thinking like an evangelist. This is how he's always thought. This has been his model. This is how he. But I don't think even as evangelism, his approach necessarily works. And so um, there, there's a story I've been thinking of along these lines. And I kind of thought about it when I was rewatching that clip of him with the, the gay historian um, about a, a, a guy I, I've corresponded a little bit with. He's a, a, his name is Beckett Cook. He's a, a writer um, and speaker. And his testimony of how he was converted to Christianity as a gay man was that he walked into a coffee shop in California, saw some Christian young people having a Bible study and started having conversation with them. And so then he asked him, well, what does your church think of homosexuality? And he said, well, we think it's a sin. And later he said, and I so appreciated how direct and forthright they were that they weren't kind of hedging or, or dancing around the issue or trying to give me a super nuanced answer. They just answered it directly. And so then he visited their church the next week and had a, a profound experience and became Christian and that that was that. So um, I think I think people like him are getting left out of the conversation when um, when I hear people try to push the the coward model of, of engagement of like, well, you have to be really careful in how you 
talk around this or that clip of Coward Coward says, I don't even, it could be misleading even to say that this is a sin because sin isn't what sends you to hell. It's, um, it's, it's rejection of the gospel that sends you to da, 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 da. And I mean, these kids didn't seem to be laboring under any of those constraints. They just answered the question like normal people. And that spoke to him and he appreciated that. And he was a secular gay guy in an urban context, right? Okay, exactly the kind of person whom the Keller bottle was supposedly tailor made to reach. And these kids seem to get along fine without it. So I don't know, I just kind of throw that out there for what it's worth. Um, what, what's, your, what's your reaction to that? And you've, Douglas Murray has said similar things, right? Where in his conversations with his Anglican priests growing up, he would ask them the questions that were bugging him and right. they They'd would like, either no. they would either give waffly <laughs> yeah. or uh you know embarrassed or whatever sort of answers to his questions and it yeah. caused them to it caused him to lose his respect for them whereas if they had been bolder in giving an answer even if it wasn't maybe the answer he wanted to hear at the time he would have at least respected some gumption or something like that there, I'd say yeah. there are probably some very gay people that much prefer Doug Wilson's approach to Tim Keller's. <laughs> maybe, maybe so. Although because at least with Wilson, you know what you got. And, you know, Wilson and um, Christopher Hitchens got along famously. Yeah. So yeah. so that, that doesn't surprise me. But the world is full of lots of different people. And um, different different groups are going to have to figure out how to... Um, how to manage all of these different people. And I think actually the diversity in the church in terms of approaches is a feature, not a bug. And so the world is, I think, in my opinion, the world is better to have both Douglas Wilson and Tim Keller. Now you're going to make everyone mad. <laughs> I, well, I, don't I, I think you're right, Paul, but perhaps maybe um, Tim Keller's problem was he had a little bit more power and influence over the conversation and instead of him being an ingredient of a multi-front evangelical effort, he got more attention and eyeballs and seemed more representative of the larger thing than was really perhaps true or good. And I, I, I know that we're kind of running short on time, but I think another whole part of this is the failure of the elite evangelicals to feel loyal to and responsive to the needs of those who they were the elite on behalf of. Yeah, right? that, and, I mean, yeah. Yes, I, yes, I was just, yes, right. I'll agree with that. Right. And, and, and I think, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, so, okay, okay. Well, I mean, I was just going to say, I mean, Paul, I, I know that you were pushing back when I when I said that um, there was a, a punching down tendency, but I, I it is there. I mean, when I read articles and things that, that Cower has put out recently, I'll see him make really broad brush statements about, well, evangelicals have a problem with fill in the blank, you know, like evangelicals have a problem with yeah. science or I, I haven't read much of them for the last 10 years. Fundamentals that, you know, well, maybe, maybe that's part of where our difference comes in is that I, yeah, I'm looking at the kind of stuff he's putting out and I see this or like this, this whole thread that blew up on abortion where he goes, oh my gosh, evangelicals have no idea how to do theology of politics and oh they're missing my point and oh I shouldn't have brought up abortion and all this this stuff where I think some of the cracks in in this are showing and it's sort of showing that he does have sort of an elite mentality where it's like I everybody guys class listen to me I figured this out okay I have the 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 true model and you evangelicals need to go do some more reading 
and come back when you agree with my way of, of doing this stuff. So, I mean, I unfortunately, I think that that unspoken class divide is there and it's been emerging more and more clearly of late. I, that, that wouldn't surprise me because again, Tim Keller's church, you know, sort of like Park Street, um, you know, was this, these, these are churches for, you know, not living stones type people. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think a, you know, part of what I've tried to do in the Christian Reformed Church is hopefully let, let's not have the Grand Rapids elite despise, um, you know, the, the, the outer rings. And, you know, let's, you know, because, you know, that's kind of where, where I'm from too. So, um, but I think, I think the times have changed significantly. And I, I think, I don't know that Keller understands the change. And I thought, I, I actually really appreciated James Wood's pieces. Yeah, they um, were really good. And, and I, I, I appreciated the tone. And the second one, I appreciated the nuance. I, I think the, the cha- I think the challenges that we're facing are just so much deeper. And it's very difficult. I always say hierarchies bind and blind. When yeah. you get to a level that Tim Keller has, yeah, it's yeah. really hard to sort of come down from the tower and see, say, what's been going on in the Jordan Peterson movement, partly because you have to rely on signals. And once, okay, so David Brooks says, you know, what he, the nice things he says about Peterson, but then very quickly, everyone is going to segment Peterson with the alt-right. And it's like, which is so dumb. It's I can't get over how stupid makes, that is. Which makes yeah. absolutely no sense. I think conservative people will try. We don't have time to get into this, but that one guy was making a thread who was lumping Peterson with Tucker Carlson. I'm like, ah, those are totally different. Those guys are a different world. Why are we mashing them together in the same Twitter thread? But I, I, I guess I sort of see it. And, and his broad brush point was that people like Keller, I guess, have left a vacuum, um, um, and then people are searching elsewhere. Well, I, I, I don't I don't know that there isn't a space for for what Keller has done and what he's doing for certain kinds of people. But I think you're right, Sam, that Trump sort of collapsed that space. And we're in a very different time now where I think I think we have to ask much more fundamental questions. I think there's going to be a lot of space for Benedict option type experiments. But as you know, my conversation with a member of this of the of the Chicago meetup um there are issues with the benedict option attempts too so there's i i i you know this this makes the orthodox and the catholics mad since i've just ticked off conservative protestants now you're going um, after Dre here yeah but but i i think i think part of the reason that protestantism is a necessary thing still today is we're going to need more experimentation and it tends to be in protestantism where you have a lot of that experimentation and and i think we're also going to have to ask hard questions about okay what does it mean to be a christian now with with answers to questions that weren't really terribly salient in 2000 in even 2006 Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. If, it, I, if I had to throw Tim Keller under the bus a little bit, I think part of the problem is, is that his feeling was like, hey, my fellow evangelicals, please don't support this Trump person. I've almost sealed the deal with David Brooks. I right. think a couple more <laughs> right. lunch conversations at a nice elite Manhattan restaurant 
and I will have David Brooks accepting Jesus as you his had Lord to go and Savior, and blow it. but you're blowing it with this yeah. Trump business, and like, right. please just like, don't do that. And meanwhile, me the people <laughs> in the people in rural America are like, yeah, but the factory's closing, and yeah. my main street is mostly vacant. And no yeah, one's and listening I'm, and to I'm me. Suffering and I'm suffering. And you aren't listening to me either, Tim Keller. You're still yeah. trying to seal the deal with David Brooks. <laughs> and 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 I'm suffering at my job at my corporate workplace for being a Christian. Which, if you listen to what Tim Keller has to say about that, he's not particularly sympathetic to, because he'll say, "Well, the religious right kind of we brought that on ourselves because um, they they were a bunch of bigoted meanies in the '80s or whatever." So reap what you sow, what goes around comes around kind of a thing. So uh, yeah, I guess our skirt was too short, apparently. So I mean, I'll what? send you guys, I'll send you, you no, know, if you listen to this, the church leaders podcast is pretty remarkable. Like he, he starts off talking about the scaremongering religious right. And then like about halfway through, he admits now, by the way, things are getting worse. And he admits it might be true in 10 years, 10 more years that Christians can't um, hold positions in public institutions or corporate or get schools a lunch or whatever. Date with David Brooks. Yeah. Get a lunch date with David Brooks, right? And he goes, "That might even be true, but um, but yeah, we we kind of nurtured this and brought this on ourselves." It's like, really, oh. that that's an interesting history of events there. So I mean, there's a lot of resentment for that kind of attitude where people like you're describing Sam will listen to a podcast like that think oh okay okay I see how it is I, I see how it is we're just gonna have to figure this out for ourselves then aren't we if, if there's one lesson um we should learn from Donald Trump is that condescension is a short-term game and the elites in America have been playing it and that, that's been gone on for a long time, but it's a short-term game because there are always more despicables than there are your kind of people. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, also, it's also helpful to remember that the divide used to be black and white. And so if you in some ways just sort of cherish the African-American community, that gave you a certain amount of credibility. And, and part of what we're seeing in terms of the racial landscape is that African-Americans as the most favored minority status, that's going away because there's just, I mean, this, 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 it's no longer black and white. It's a myriad. And, and again, part of that is the internet because back when you had limited channels of knowledge, you, you had limited bandwidth for narrative. Now it's a supernova. So it's the world has changed. And I, I don't think I think in many ways, Keller isn't really set for this conversation very well. So how how did you not fall into his trap, Paul? Well, it's the beard. <laughs> <laughs> you the know, magic I, beard. maybe it's because I was not I was not successful in any way. That is a profound comment. And I think it's a lot truth to that. My truth to that. I and I also I also wrestled deeply with a lot of questions. You know, peace it press the Presbyterians part I saw this with with especially saw this with uh, City Church San Francisco 
at a particular phase. You, you, Tim Keller would say, here's what you do. Here's, here's what you need to do to replicate what we have done. And, and a fair amount of replication happened. Seekers did the same thing. Tim Keller took a lot of DNA from the seekers. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, he didn't yeah. really have a seeker service, but he did tune the music to a particular, you know, we're going to have a, we're going to have a string quartet. He, he was Bill Hybels with slightly skinnier jeans. Well, well, no, it was, you know, it was and Bill Hybels in tweed. I was going to say yeah, the yeah, okay. opposite. Yeah, yeah. Bill Hybels. Yeah, maybe yeah, so. Bill Hybels in tweed. Nicer. Yeah, yeah. And yep. you're dropping better, you know, you're, you're, you're dropping better. More literary quotes. references. More literary yeah, references. Yeah, right. Um, you know, it's, it's Bill Hybels in tweed in many ways. And we're going to do communion on one of our four services on Sunday. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And and you know that that I think I think really worked for a particular audience. And America is so huge. And you know, okay, Redeemer, five thousand. That's not that many people for New York City. And there's way more people in lots of little grimy storefront churches, with pastors doing all kinds of things that you would laugh at. If you put, mm -hmm. made little clips of them on YouTube. Our friend Jacob is getting hounded by a black Hebrew Israelite YouTuber at the moment, which is just a hilarious thing. But this black Hebrew Israelite I wouldn't church mess with Jacob. on Jacob's the south side of Chicago, 6,000 people. Yeah. I should talk to Jacob. Yeah. So you'll so, get a DM from him in approximately and, two and I hours. Think, <laughs> I, think, I think part of what made certain people in the media really want to sort of elevate Tim Keller is a hope to maybe let's see if we can domesticate these evangelicals. And if they all sort of become like Tim Keller, maybe, you know, maybe they'll stop voting Republican because That's for a lot of people in sort of the progressive evangelical space, that's what they want. And at I, I, Living Stones, I've got Democratic Party people, and I've got, you know, some black folks vote Republican. Hate to tell you, it's, it's true. true. It's true. <laughs> and I have some deeply conservative African Americans here, and I've got some that are, and they understand each other. And so, you know, and then of course, with Peterson and Verveke, I, I think I'm. I looked at the formula and I said, God bless you. You just work that formula. You know, a lot of people will, who, who probably couldn't, you know, who couldn't do church. It's also helpful to know. I did not have to buy this book. Rachel sent it to me. I mean, I was, you know, I was chatting with Rachel fairly consistency, fairly consistently on her blog in the early days. And, um, Episcopalianism isn't working, mm. not for a lot of people. I'm, so for the, for the uh, thumbnail for this, I'm just going to have two clips of you holding up Kristen Dumais' book and Rachel Held Evans' book. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be the thumbnail. <laughs> but and and this is why this is why I say, well, first of all, there's going to be a lot of a lot of churches for a lot of different people, but we also have to have better conversations in terms of okay the you know the tom hollands of the world the douglas murray's of the world the jordan peterson's of the world the john verveke's of the world what what does what does a 
productive conversation from someone like myself who would, you know, love to bring people into, I'll use evangelical language because we haven't developed a new language left, a life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ. What does that look like? What that, I mean, that's really my project as well. And I think my, my Substack is, is part of that because, um, I mean, Top Holland reads my Substack. Like a lot of these, Douglas Murray reads my Substack. A lot of these people are, are reading my Substack. It's a way I see myself as trying to carry forward what I think, I mean, some of what I think Keller genuinely wanted to do. I mean, I, I, I have a lot of problems with, with his model, but he had the best of intentions and, and he genuinely wanted to reach a certain kind of person. Um, but I think he thought he had to do certain things in order to do that well. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm attempting to, to carry forward in, in my own way, much, much smaller scale, of course, but a sort of evangelistic project, um, but, but without the same kind of baggage or without the, the same sense that I, I feel like I need, to, I need to clarify that I'm not like X or Y, kind of Christian. Like I, Bishop Barron you know, doesn't do any of that when he talks to Brett and Heather Weinstein, right? Yeah. And in that right. sense, he's, it's more organic. He, yeah. he, he, he's not backseating the uncomfortable and front seating the attractive part. Yeah. Um, now, I mean, people have their own issues with Bishop Barron, but, but yeah. 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 But, but, but here's the thing. I think what we're going to do with, you know, people for whom Douglas Murray and Tom Holland and John Verveke and Jordan Peterson, and I mentioned these names just because not really so much as individuals, just because they're the names people would know. I don't think we're going to do this for them. No. I think we're going to do this with them. And I think that is exactly the same thing that happened to Keller. And I don't mean happened to in a negative sense. Keller didn't develop this for New York. He developed this with New York. And so there's going to be elements of that DNA that other people look at and say, uh, but maybe the principality of New York had designs on Tim Keller that weren't for his ends. Yeah. And that's the issue. I think, I mean, to what extent did, did Keller colonize New York and to what extent did New York colonize Keller? It always goes both ways. Exactly. And I think it went more the other way than, than Keller planned maybe going and are, in and, and maybe more plenty, than he realizes today. Yeah. And there are plenty of people in my comment section that will say, yeah, Vander Clay has gone too far, you know, too far into into I mean, its audience capture right to a certain degree yeah but i i do think that that is always the missionary journey it's part of the reason lots of heresies always come out of missionary work um but over the long term you got to sort these things through and i know the orthodox you know some of the orthodox are pulling their hair out but i would argue that it happens with them too yeah, well, maybe some of their heresies were they're contextualizing into their Greek context. Uh, that, would, that would maybe be my point. Speaking of heresies, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I didn't bring it up. I didn't bring <laughs> it up. <laughs> um, and at that, that note, I actually have to go. So we've been talking about mm -hmm. Keller, but there's actually a Twitter spaces going on with James Wood right now about Tim Keller. Um, so I, if you want to tell him, conclude, tell him, tell him he can talk to Paul Vanderclay sometime. Sure, I think I, he would love to talk to you. I think you guys would, would have a blast. He's a, he's a great guy. He's such a clear thinker, but he doesn't like 
conflict. And so when his piece created conflict, he was like, oh, no. No, I'd, I'd like to talk to him, especially because he's going to Redeemer. I don't yeah. even know if he knows what he's getting himself into. Okay. I will, I, will, I will link you guys up. Okay. So, Sam, do you want to? Um, uh, to, to be continued, you know, if you want to yeah. see if you enjoyed this conversation, uh, we've got more to come. Come to Chicago. Uh, links are in the description. I can't think of a better teaser. All right. <laughs>